This is CT Startup, your source for information on entrepreneurs, investors, and resources in the Connecticut startup ecosystem. From university campuses to industrial labs, from Stanford to Hartford, and from Danbury to Norwich, if it's happening out there in Connecticut, you'll find it in here. Now it's time to enter into a world of innovation, a world of human struggles, heartbreak, and achievement. And most of all, a world of wonder. Welcome to CT Startup. All right, so we're back for another episode of the uh, CT Startup Podcast, and this is a, a new little format how we're going to have uh, one of us host. This is Eric Francis, um, and we're here with Pete Senna of Digital S Surgeons. Did I say that right? Did I mess up that? Spot on. Thank All you. All right. Very good. So nice how are you doing? Me. I'm doing good, man. Good. Doing good. good. And, and by the way, we have David Salinas and, as hype man in the background, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, so Pete, tell us tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little about uh, your, your role at Digital Surgeons, and uh, we'll, we'll get into as much stuff later, but... Yeah, Start there. no, for sure. So Connecticut native, uh, grew up here in Southern Connecticut, um, been really into design and engineering and coding since I was, you know, like, since I can remember, <laughs> um, like every kid fall in love with video games and then want to try to make them yourselves and figure out, like, you have to write lots of software and do lots of things to be able to do that. So, um, that's really the, the genesis of my background, um, went on to then found, digital surgeons. So I started a company really in my dorm room at UConn, um, ran that as a freelance designer developer for a couple of years and then discovered I wanted to take it to the next level. And, uh, when entrepreneurs want to take things to the next level, what do they typically do? Go find a co-founder. Yeah. So I found Dave Salinas who's joining me here today. So, um, brought him on and, uh, we, we went partners in digital surgeons, which is, so for those that don't know, we're a digital demand consultancy. We started out doing a lot of branding and website design. It's sort of at the early advent of digital. And now we really run the gamut. So a big thing, which I know you want to talk about today, direct to consumer, digital transformation, all the buzzwords, as I say these days. Um, so that's been um, a really big part of the journey, but I would say really where my journey, I think, took off was when I partnered up with Dave, um, who's awkwardly filming right now for, yeah. for who knows what reason. That, that's, that's a part of it. That's what Dave does. That's just awkward he does. moments. Yeah. yeah. So awkward Instagrams. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so when now that he's done distracting me, um, <laughs> that was essentially really my, my story is got really into design and problem solving from an engineering perspective. Since then, fell in love with human behavior. And yeah. I think it was my passion for human behavior that got me really into uh, marketing as a construct. So I just was a student in that world and loved it. And, um, now was it 14, 15 years later, still doing it. Yeah. So I guess that's the, the funny thing. So, uh, 14, 15 years later. So we're at the district right now. We're in the law lab. You guys are part of the founding team of the, the district and what, what's happening here. And the funny thing is that we, this is the CT startup podcast, right? But Absolutely. like, do, do you see yourself as a startup? I mean, you're a 15 year old company, right? Like you've gone through the ups and downs, you've gone through different transformations. Uh, you're, you're obviously much bigger than you were in the dorm room. Like you can't fit everybody in the dorm room now. So like, so, so do you consider yourself a startup? Do you like, cause I think that's one thing that I've always kind of, uh, felt is that it's sometimes a limiting factor. And some people are like, you're, you should be a startup for one or two months and then you're either a business or not. Or your new idea. So, so kind of walk through that because I, I, you deal with the, you deal with startups all the time. Yeah, no, for sure. That's a great question, Eric. So, one thing I would say is, I'm a big believer in what we call leading from the front. So, uh, I'll talk about what that means. I think for me, one, I think startup is a mindset, not a place or space and time. One of the things that I, I do a lot of work with startups, either early early venture funded startups or just 
precede in some cases. Uh, David and I do a lot of mentoring. Obviously, a big part of district is really about accelerating companies at yep. that early stage of development and giving them the tools and the space that they need and the, the resources that they need to essentially take their business to the next level. So when I think about digital surgeons, I don't think of it as a startup or a scale up or um, I try not to put those labels on it. So what Dave and I have always really believed is that having that energy, that passion, that mindset to always be looking for a different way to solve a problem and have that curiosity and creativity are the two things that I think really drove us to, you know, what seems like an overnight success. The other day we were talking to somebody and, you know, they don't realize that we've been doing this for over a decade. And I think, you know, for me, when I, when I really look at this, startup is a mindset. And I think what, when entrepreneurs forget about where they came from and some of those early stage struggles, I think they lose a bit of their resilience and tenacity. And that's where I think we see burnout kicking in. We see sort of stagnation or plateau starting to happen. So that's why I'm really excited about being able to take all these new evolving business models and just take that energy of startup and bring it to life here in, in this community and the communities that we're building abroad. Yep. So so I assume in kind of the, the evolution of, of digital surgeons and so forth, um, this district was a moment in that transformation, right? Like I assume moving here, doing this whole project kind of changes. So like just go through the last transformation digital surgeons had and like where you guys are now and kind of the stuff that you're doing. Absolutely. No, I love that question. First thing I would say is I believe that any great business is always shifting and evolving, understanding the market, the whether it's product market fit. So whether you're a service company or a product company, whether you sell analog goods or digital goods, whatever the model is, essentially, I think there's an overall awareness and and just being mindful of where the market and the people are going that I think people lose sight of, quite frankly. And that's one of the reasons that I see a lot of companies, especially our larger companies, the fortune companies that we work with, they really get stuck in their ways. And, you know, it's very popular for them at different levels to say, oh, we've tried that before. We've always done it this way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what's the last transformation that we went through is David and I realized that as two very entrepreneurial minded folks who started the business as our the two sort of co-founding partners, what we really realized, and Dave, feel free to jump in here at any point, but um, what we realized is that in order to take the business to the place we wanted to, it needed to have a series of focuses, but also really create an eclectic sense of space for us because we're very creative. We're very sort of serious. the juice is flowing, right? You, have to get, you, you gotta have that energy around you to, yep. Absolutely, man. So I think Eric, what, one of the things that was a big transformation for us is when we started looking into evolved business models. You know, co-working today is all the rage. We see all these different things with the gig economy. You know, Dave and I had a concept over 10 years ago um, of bringing to life a, a co-working, we, we're calling it the sort of business mecca. And, yep. and Dave's like the king of names. So he, he named it as always. Um, but really, I think the the thought there is that the first transformation for us was evolve past the standard agency services, consulting services, marketing services mm-hmm. model. Um, what we started to do is start to invest in early stage startups. Um, and early on, we were thinking, are we going to create a fund? Are we going to create spinoff business units and that sort of thing? And that was really the first step in that transformation. And I think ultimately what then turned into the big transformation is when we realized that we were no longer just helping brand and create companies, but also brand and create communities. And that's really where Dave brought the concept of district to, to light and to table. And Dave, I don't know if you maybe just can share a couple of quick thoughts on district, but yeah, yeah it's kind of funny because for Dave, like we've heard it a few different iterations at like when it was on paper, when it was in progress, progress. So, you know, where is it? Where is the district at now? The district is, uh, it's amazing. It's, <laughs> it's, it's turned into 
everything that we expected it to turn into times 10. I think that um, you put in place the right recipe and and all of a sudden it turns into something magical. Um, today we have uh, 162 companies here. So we're definitely the largest ecosystem. And, th and that's not even without the expansion, right? That, that's without the expansion. Yeah. yeah. So 162 companies in, uh, in the building, 600 people every single day on average in and out. Um, that's not including the amenities. So that's not including the uh, members that belong to the athletic club yep. outside of the building or uh, the people that are visiting. Yep. Like this right now right kind now. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You, yep. um, uh, the people that are visiting the restaurant and so on and so forth. So the community is, is just absolutely tremendous. We're seeing the types of community wins just as an example. We had a student from Holburton finish his foundations portion. Mm -hmm. So he's essentially the, the, all the building blocks of being a really good software engineer. Okay. So he's looking for a job. So the first three students got hired by Lockheed Martin Sikorsky. One guy got an ag tech job in New York City. So we're off to a good start. Nice. And then this one guy says, I see him in the hallway the other day wearing a suit. And shoes, and it was on, he usually dressed. Yeah, up you're like, dude, like, why y'all dressed up? He's like, I just came from work, and I was like, oh, you come, you come back here after work. He goes, no, I work in the building. He got hired by a company in the co-work space. And, and that's that and was that's like sudden, the point, right? That that's like the feedback loop that you you're, you're looking for from the beginning. And 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 we saw we saw a startup company hire a CEO that from a startup company that went out of business, yep. and it truly is starting to operate as a ecosystem. Yep. So. I'm almost insulted when people say it's a co-work space or just an incubator. Well, I mean, because it's, it's, so, it's so much more thoughtful. Well, because I, I assume you've gotten this and uh, both of you got it. Oh, we're going to do this. And they're like, oh, we work. They did it or this or that. And, the, you know, the, the whole debacle with that. And it's kind of one of those things where, um, again, you, you're looking at it holistically, not as just like this is the business model. It's like the because it's hard to say that it's hard to put all this in and put it into a, a clean business model or, you know, on paper, it's going to, cause it's, a lot of it has to happen naturally and just kind of, uh, it, it's going to just, you, it's like you, ha I, I hate the field of dreams motto where it's like, if you build it, they will come. It's like, if you build it, yes, but then you have to also, you know, market it. <laughs> you have to do the other stuff, right? I, I love that, Eric. And, and one thing I would add to that is I think perspective is a really, really critical thing. And, and one thing I want to make really, really clear for everyone listening on, on this today and in the future is that I'm a firm believer and David and I have, have shared this success model, I think, since our earliest days together. We've been in business for over a decade at this point. I always tell people the difference between strategy and success is execution. And you can't <laughs> have sure. execution without vision. And yeah. the thing for me is I think that what many entrepreneurs, or as I like to commonly refer to them, entrepreneurs, um, uh, often don't realize is how critical that vision is. And I think vision is being able to take something that is really needed or wanted in the world and map it in such a way that you can bring it to life. So, you know, my favorite thing is, you know, with a lot of the transformation projects that we're doing now on the digital surgeons front for our customers, as well as what David and I are doing here with, with district and the many other things connected to that, you know, I think our ability to envision something that didn't exist, there wasn't a comparable to point to, mm -hmm. you know, many businesses leg are, are legacy thinkers. They're looking at, you know, they say the best predictor of the future is the past, but oftentimes they look at it in a very linear way. So mm -hmm. they don't understand how creativity and, and connections and, and mapping can start to create that. So that's a big thing for me, I think, is, is vision. Um, it's, in my opinion, 
underexplored today in business. And I think it's one of the, the greatest reasons why you see trends like design thinking and all these buzzwords that we're going to talk yeah. about, I'm sure, in a few minutes, um, becoming such a critical thing that people are chasing. Because what we're really essentially talking about is how do you inject creativity and curiosity yep. in the workforce, right? And when you're able to do that, along with a lot of work and a lot of effort, yeah. you can bring some of these things to light. So I just wanted to offer that up as a, an additional build on everything you're saying, because that's the thing that we often get. And David and I, you know, Dave does a lot of speaking gigs and that sort of thing. And he always gets questions after I get to be the person, be his hype man. And just seeing some of the questions, I think one of the things that people fail to realize is they just have to start. They just have to do something <laughs> yeah. um, because, you know, consuming something in your Instagram feed is not going to help you create the next thing you want. Momentum is big, right? You Absolutely. have to gain momentum. And it's not it, it's not just for it's first of all, for yourself. You have to understand that you are you're actually going down this path. You're kind of cause the small wins do matter. You have to have small wins because there's going to be huge losses, <laughs> you know, so it's like those big ups and downs where as an entrepreneur, you have to be willing to do it, which I, I just want to kind of brief on the entrepreneur. I think that one of the things that uh, ecosystems, uh, and we did it in Connecticut a lot, is that we don't segment the entrepreneurial mindset. All right. So like some, a lot of people come in and they want to, the gig economy right now, you can be a solo person making 70 grand a year and be entrepreneurial, but just selling your services. Right. And you could have a co-working space in there. Right. And be a part of the ecosystem. Then there's other companies that you need to raise capital to scale and get even in and, and move on. So it's figuring out like where you are. I mean, it happened with us at trifecta is that we were a lifestyle business that can scale, but you have to be a lifestyle first. You know, right? You have to have that first before scale, and, and you can't you can't jump it sometimes. So um, it's it's interesting just on that and that kind of thing. And I think you have multiple different aspects of that here at the district. But yeah. um, but execution is, I think, the the underplayed word in in the in the ecosystem sometimes. So I'm going to tag in real quick for Pete. I just want to share a couple stories. Two uh, two stories actually. One is regardless of how busy we are. Pete, myself, we're constantly talking to people, entrepreneurs at every level. So the, just two days ago, I was talking to um, this couple uh, that have a startup company, and they're struggling to raise money, and they're struggling, and they've been, they've been at it for a while, and they said, you know, they look at, they look at us, Dave and you know, myself and Pete, and they say, like, look what you guys have gotten. Look how successful you are. And I said, let me reframe it for you. I said, in the last 13 years, I said, because you can see everything, right? You can see the offices yep. and the desks and the people and uh, the clients and the district and all the pieces that we've amassed in 13, 14 years. And you could see it that way and say, that's what success got them. I said that in the last 13 to 14 years, our failures have not been big enough to knock us down to the bottom, yeah. right? Yep. So... And there's been so many failures. We're facing a uh, failure yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah. We're facing uh, uh, a huge uh, yeah. failure right now that could hurt us real bad, but it doesn't paralyze us. And then but the second thing I wanted to say was I met this guy one day who told me, uh, he called me a rhino. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, rhinos have thick skin, big hearts, and hard heads that <laughs> let them run through walls. Yeah, yeah. The other day I was on a talk and I'm, and I used that. I loved it. I, for some reason, I've always had yep. sort of a, a thing for rhinos. Uh, like I go to the zoo and I'll just stare at the <laughs> rhinos all day, even though it's sad. But uh, uh, that they're in a cage because they're these beautiful, majestic animals. But I mentioned that in a talk in front of 50 people the other day. And the guy next to me, who's like a famous author, I was like a, a fill-in <laughs> on a yep. panel, um, lifts his, his sleeve up. And he had a rhino 
on his cufflink. Yeah. And he smiled at me and he said, do you know why I love rhinos? And I said, no, why? He said, because it's one of the only animals in the world that you'll never see walk backwards. They don't That's move backwards. They just go forward. And I always tell people, part of it is, ingra- I'm lucky. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't need the classes to learn that because I had the, the, yeah, the, you had the motivation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had the life lessons, right? I had lots of trauma and, and, and bad things happened to me at a very young age. Yep. That made me put up a a uh, a defense mechanism that says if if you get punched in the face, you can stop and get stunned. But if you fall back, you will get punched in the face again. Mm-hmm. You got to keep forward. You got to keep offensive. You got to keep moving. And and I think that's been uh, that's some of the things that we just have to teach people. That's some of the things that that ha- we've ingrained as a as a as a mantra and as a culture. Pete and I are both tough. Uh, and, and, and try to be as thick-skinned as we can uh, people in business. And that's what's really allowed us to not suffer massive catastrophes in our business over the last 13, yeah. 14 years. Yeah. It's, it, it's almost Back like, to you, have to, you, have to like you have to budget in. You have to budget those in, you know, to, to the personal energy that you're, you're giving into the startup and giving into the, to the business. Because, it, I mean, again, it's the failures that we all actually hear about. You know what I'm saying? Like people overcoming those failures and where, where the company got to and so forth. And I will have to say is that I think that one thing that you two have gotten to the level at in the ecosystem, which I know you've done it for me sometimes, is reframing a bad moment. I know that one time you saw me and it was like crushing. Like you were just like, dude, I can see it in your face, right? And but then a couple of, you know, kind of uh, uh, you sleep through it, you, you, you wake up the next day, you know that you have people around you, you're not you're, you're personally protected, you, you have that kind of base and then you move forward. Right. It's not you just can kind of keep it going. And it's kind of funny is that uh, we've had a lot of challenges as well. And it's actually a lot of people have been like, oh, they're, they're stunned that we move forward through it. You know, like it is. And that's actually that's actually been more uh, rewarding sometimes lately than than the uh, in the succeeding. It's like, yeah. Oh, my God, you guys did get through that. And it and it's fine. Right. Yeah. And um, I think, so. Eric, you know, I love that you said that reframing reframing is such a critical part, I think, of of anyone's mindset or success. For me, one thing that really shows up when you think about reframing is this idea of turning and transforming losses into learnings. Yeah. And I think that that might sound extremely obvious when the listeners hear this. But for me, what I think is such a critical thing to to both think of and embody is how do you turn those losses into learning? How do you be able to continue to achieve some sense of mastery as you move on in your career? You know, Daniel Pink, great famous author, he's on the New York Times bestseller list in his book Drive. He talks about this idea of what are the three internal motivating factors that intrinsically drive people? He says it's purpose, autonomy, and mastery, right? People, I think why entrepreneurs are so massively successful, besides their brilliant creativity and resilience, I think the entrepreneurs that I look up to that I think are really doing um, a great impact to the world or to the business, or maybe they're just a unicorn billion dollar Mm -hmm. startup is, I think they have a very clear sense of purpose and vision in their head. And they're able to then create autonomy for themselves and their people, which allows them to reframe those losses into learning. And if you really think about the whole basis of this, this conversation, you know, when you reached out to me and, and the team, you said, Hey, I want to talk about direct to consumer and transformation. (laughs) What is direct to consumer, right? All all direct to consumer is, is a reframe on how to deliver customer value that removes the extra steps that previously existed between the customer and the deliverer of said product. And that's what I think is so extremely interesting about it. I also think that people have this um, 
misconception of what direct to consumer is, right? We see, you know, we're doing a lot of work right now talking to some of the insure techs who yep. are, you know, really up up in Hartford thinking about how do we tap into this this technology thing. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. How so, do we use technology? <laughs> insure insure tech, ed tech, ad tech, ed tech, it's everything's tech, tech, tech. But really I think it's a bigger move than just technology. And I can say that as a software engineer who's been writing code since I was, you know, you know, a kid and could look at the screen. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'm curious to hear what would be helpful for you in the community when it comes to just this topic of transformation and, and direct to consumer. Yeah, so I mean, when it, when it comes to direct to consumer, like let's just talk about that. And, and because I think that one thing that's kind of left out. So I think from the business world, I, I, most people understand direct to consumer, right? It, it, it's from a business perspective, it's like I want to cut out the middlemen. I want to have the relationship with my consumers and own that relationship and and, and so forth. But I don't think um, I think what's left out of the conversation a lot is the consumer because I think the consumer has to realize that they're coming into an economy where they have they can dictate more of what happens and kind of the, the change of an ecosystem and the chain of change of products by how they interact and so it kind of goes back to so data right and I mean data is the big thing that we're giving up free every single day to all these companies and so it's kind of um, the, the whole push to to bring data underneath the control of people allows them to almost be have that be can own a piece of that directing to consumer relationship um and and so that's been something that's been on my mind about it because at the end of the day the consumers um unless unless we're just doing stuff to make them just kind of uh just like marketers have, have been seen in the past like we move people in certain directions we get them to do things without them knowing right we do subtle things right but I think people are waking up to the fact that that's happening, right? So it's like, don't con me, be open. Let's, let's like, what do you want from me, and what are you going to give for me? And like, let's have that conversation. So I think that that's that's been on my mind about it. Um, I don't know about my listeners, but I, I always go with what's on my mind. <laughs> but I don't know how you feel no, about I, that. I love that. You know, Eric. One of the things I would say is, um, I think it was Ginny Romani at at IBM previously that said, "Data is the new oil." And you know, David and I have been saying data is the currency of the future since the beginning. I mean, some of our you know, earliest stage breakthrough case studies that we were able to do for, you know, big brands like, you know, the USTA for US Open and some of the great work that we, we did as both an investor and uh, consultants on the Arcos brand here, which yep. is doing some great stuff in the golf tech space, IoT. Data might be the currency of the future, but I feel like we really need uh, the ability to refine that data. So what good is oil without a refinery? Yeah. yeah. Right. And the thing that I struggle with a lot is, People read a book on direct to consumer and they think that they're going to become the next Dollar Shave Cub. People, you know, come and they think that they're going to become the next Casper. What people don't realize is Casper spent over half a billion dollars to be able to get close to that IPO filing. What people don't realize is Dollar Shave Are they even Club. profitable? Are they even profitable? Like, are they like, you know, it's still. <laughs> not only are they not. So they spent that money in one year. There's like 27 competitors that are yeah. all oh, getting yeah. the all same mattresses from China. And I, I actually just saw them at a, at a, uh, they were in the store. They weren't even, they were in store now, Casper. You yeah. Know, and and so yeah. they're getting this and because, because they're running yeah. out of the, everybody figured it out and they all yeah. went to the same, to the same people in China. And I got news for you. If you're listening to this right now in real time, uh, in the next uh, couple months, then you'll know what we're talking about. If you're listening to this in the future. The coronavirus is going to oh, screw it, them oh, all because I'm, I'm, all I'm, getting getting, I'm getting hit with LED lighting and everything yeah, right now. Everybody's <laughs> getting crushed, and especially companies like Casper that are relying on the on the supply chain out of China, they're all getting crushed right now. Yeah, and the reason. <laughs> the, yeah, no, yeah. The, the, the reason I shared that, Eric, is, you know, so so that's great to share. A, you know, a, a metaphor like like 
you know, data and, yeah. and refineries, right? So what, what do I mean by that? I think the, the audience might be listening. If you're running a direct-to-consumer business or if you're shifting and evolving your business mm-hmm. model, you know, I was talking to a, an insurance executive the, the other day um, up at Nassari at the Reimagine Pass podcast that uh, Paul Tyler is sort of a big known for what he's doing up there. And one of the things that I was getting into this discussion around is what really is direct-to-consumer and what's the value of it and ultimately the cost of it. Okay. So I think that the challenge that I run into, you mentioned the field of dreams metaphor yep. earlier, and I'm glad you did. I think that right now, a lot of people chase what they think is going to be an easier way to acquire customers. So the obvious value of direct-to-consumer is you get to remove the middleman or middlewoman yep. um, that's the intermediary, right? So that sounds great because then you have access to first party data. That first party data means that you understand many different things about your audience that historically would be gated. You know, we have a lot of clients in the, in the CPG space. So many of them, their customer is Walmart or Target or, you know, Ibotta or that sort of thing. So the not having that direct relationship creates a challenge where they have to go then buy that data and truly how accurate is it or how transparent is it? I mean, anybody in the CPG space, if you've done, ever looked at Nielsen or IRI data, it's, it's pretty skewed in some cases. It, it lacks a lot based on, you know, their uh, data collection methodologies. Yeah, it's like game. It's a, it's a game system, right? Yeah. It's a game system, 100%, right? So um, the way that the marketplace works, right? But, but what that means, I think, is from a DTC perspective, it's really what do you understand about your audience and your customer? What is your product or service? How does it create value? And I always say to people, we do a lot of value proposition exercises with our clients and and branding and, and business model transformation. And one of the first things I always ask is what makes you different and what makes you better? So show me what makes you different, show me what makes you better, and then show me what makes you different and better. And it's kind of this really over elaborate Venn diagram. But the reason I get into that is typically what I'm seeing is people try to chase direct to consumer and you know they, they learn a couple of buzzwords like ROAS or LTV or CAC costs because they read a couple of blog yeah, articles. Yeah, yeah. And what, what's a pain point for me is that they don't understand that it is very much a pay-to-play model. So historically, where you would hire a sales team and develop customer relationships to sell to your two-step distribution method or your customer, now you have to remove that. And in order to build that growth stack, you have to spend an enormous amount of money on media and media strategy and and acquisition costs to be able to then acquire those customers and more importantly, retain them, right? Because we're in a world now where as we're recording this podcast, there are three micro brands or more popping up on Instagram in this one (laughs) hour. So how do you go about creating a differentiated value? And I think that all have a a lightweight product or, or their chance to do that. So I think what's interesting is we work with a lot of global brands that are looking to do DTC. One of the first things that I always tell people is, why are you going direct to consumer? Why are you not looking to directly build this on Amazon or directly build this through a standard distribution method? Mm -hmm. You've been in this business for X amount of years. What I always look for is, you know, there's a, Dave McClure came up with this famous pirate metrics. Are you familiar with pirate metrics? So he calls them pirate metrics because that stands for R in terms of the way it says. So it's a really, if you haven't seen pirate metrics, definitely go ahead and give yourself a Google search. You'll, you'll thank me later for it. But what it does is it creates a simplified funnel and it helps people understand how do you acquire, activate, retain, and grow those particular audiences. And I think being able to do that, you have to understand what is the value that your product creates? What is the product market fit, which is a buzzword, but really what it means is how do you understand those buying and retention triggers for your audiences? And the only way to do that, you can have the best 
AI-based, machine learning-based uh, data tools on the planet, the best way to do that is to do what we're doing right now, which is it's sit across it's the like, table. It's literally sitting down and have a conversation. Yes. Yeah, so I, I put that out there just because I think that one of the, the first things that a lot of my, my team on the strategy team has to achieve with our clients on a daily basis is really resetting their expectations, reframing their expectations as to what is really possible with some of the audacious goals and aspirations that people want from a, a P&L perspective. And then how do you go about being able to build the right media mix, but more importantly, build the right budget to be able to employ the people, the vendors, the services, the products, and then ultimately the media rates required to be able to drive that funnel yep. so that you can get those metrics we talked about. Yeah. It's kind of interesting is that when it comes to like the sales funnel of direct to consumer, it's, it's almost like you, you, it's so in many companies they have like the, uh, the hunter, they have the farmer, they kind of like explore right business development versus, you know, inside sales versus kind of the outside sales and everything. But it's almost like you, you, you have to combine all those in one because when you're talking to your consumer, you always have to be like kind of pinging them because, because we live in such a fast paced world now, you have to check in with them every month, every two months, every three months. If you, again, you have a subscription business or so forth to make sure they're still there, to make sure that you still have an interaction with them, to make sure you, you're still, um, uh, providing that, that value proposition that took them away from another, you know, uh, place. I mean, it's so, it's so funny. I mean, you have like the blue aprons and all these, like these descriptions, like they're going down right now and I'm on there, but I keep on denying it, you know, like kind of, you know, I, I always get dinged every six weeks or so, you know, for it. But, um, but it's one of those things where um, they lose the direct to consumer and they, they lose that interaction of actually talking to them. Did, are we, are we still hitting on the value prop? Are we not, you know, what can we do uh, uh, to adjust? And it goes back to, we were talking earlier about the uh, Kevin Kelly, a thousand true fans, right? It's like, once yeah. I have a thousand true fans, then we'll talk about the next thousand, you know, like it's like, let, let's only talk about a certain amount until we can, you know, scale. Speaking of scale, I love that you said that. So I'm a huge, huge fan. I actually still have the t-shirt. It's, it's pretty worn out these days from being to the washroom times, but Paul Graham do things that don't scale, yep. right? W really what that's, what does that mean? It means how do you tap into the, the emotional contagions of, of humans to be able to create connections? So for me, when I think about the thing that direct to consumer brands or people trying to transform are not thinking about is they're not thinking about the transformational triggers or the internal or external market factors. David just a few moments ago mentioned the coronavirus. I think what was so interesting to me is to understand the power of psychology and how something as simple as the coronavirus has actually lowered sales for the beer Corona. Obviously, they're not it's even so remotely. It's, a... it, it's not stupid though. So <laughs> but I, I'm just saying, it's like it's like ah. as a marketeer though, I, I look. I think it's fascinating to understand the cognitive biases and behaviors and the heuristics that our brains go through. Right. So not to get overly science on on the group, but. Yeah, we're thinking about startup founders that are listening to this. We're thinking about business owners and business contributors on this podcast. For me, what I think about is what are those triggers? So mm -hmm. you mentioned scale. I think the big problem plaguing organizations in DTC specifically is that when they think about scale, they they want to they want to fail fast. They want to scale, scale, scale. But what they end up doing is they end up doing what what I think is the biggest sin in business, which is what I call an erosion model. It's basically when you have you don't look at lifetime value. You don't look at a long-term product portfolio strategy. Maybe you launch a singular product, maybe you launch a singular service, and your, your customer acquisition costs are so high and your lifetime value rates are so low, you basically have no chance of, of success or growth unless you're able to get to that point where you get bought by a Unilever, which is what Dollar Shave Club did, right? Yeah. We also, what recently happened with the... Um, 
the some of the other folks who have tried to go into the same business and recently just dropped their their subscription services. I think that the challenge and promise of subscription services is that for us to remain subscribed to something, whether it's a perishable product, a service, whatever it is, that service, the triggers around it have to have value. So when I say internal, external triggers, first thing I look at is external triggers are the market, right? So how will your product be affected by the today, tomorrow, yep. in the future shifts? In the case that Dave mentioned, it's things like supply chain. It's things like, you know, elasticity. It's the basics of economics that we all probably slept through yeah. in college. Yeah, yeah. It's actually kind of funny is thinking about the, uh, the beds. I would say that the, in the next four months is probably a prime time or the probably next six months of prime time to, for people buying uh, beds because people are moving and they're buying houses. And I would assume there has to be some sort of correlation with that. But, you know, it would just be interesting that they're not going to be able to do it. But again, I'm, I'm getting hit with LED lighting. I'm, I'm getting pushed out, you know, eight weeks, maybe, you know, maybe even longer. And, it's, and think about the size of your business in terms of like, imagine what's happening I to know, like like, Stanley <laughs> Black and Decker, right? Yeah, yeah. Who has like the, um, an, a, ma a massive supply chain. How f what's their stock down? 20%? Yeah. Over thirty dollars. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like it's it's pretty remarkable, like what's happening because of this. I mean, even the effect that it had on voter turnout for Super Tuesday. Everybody's canceling events. Like yeah. it's South it's, by it's Southwest wild. might yeah. get canceled. The big car, the big car show just got canceled. Um, I mean, you got cruise ships getting stopped on the on the port. <laughs> we got we got my our coworker Dave Menard uh, going on a cruise right now yes. too. It's so so, so a friend a, fr <laughs> a friend of mine actually said this the other day. They said um. Uh, he said, I'm going to buy the dip, right? So that's a, a term of yeah, when the yeah, stock yeah. market yeah, dips. Yeah, you get so, it. You so get the stock it. market's down, uh, you know, a couple thousand points. It's still doing okay. He says, I'm going to jump in, and I think there's going to be a bounce. Yeah. That was on uh, Saturday, Sunday, this past weekend. So Monday, market opens up. Market bounces. It's like a 5% bounce. I stayed out of it. I told, him it was a I told him it was a dangerous proposition. I said, I don't think we hit rock bottom yet. Yeah. Sure enough... After the after the bounce, another big dip. Yeah, it usually does that, right? Yeah. So I called him and I said, "You probably it probably didn't eat into everything yet." And I was like, "But what are you going to do?" He's like, "I might buy a little bit more." I said, "Let me give you another strategy." I said, "Wait for the next bounce and buy the and buy the the volatility index, the fear index." And he said, "Why?" I said, "Because I've never in my life seen uh, the type of chaos, the type of concern." for something like this coronavirus, which is really, it, it's serious for older people, but for everybody else, like everybody's going to survive it, yeah, right? My wife's a nurse. She's my like, My you know. daughter <laughs> in fifth grade said to me, Dad, fifth graders should be politicians because all they're talking about now is the coronavirus. I don't think she understands what that means, yeah. but she was trying to articulate the fact that all that fifth graders, 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds are, are talking about is coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. So if the... If this if this pandemic and 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 sort of fear has reached that grade, that level of thinking where that's all they're talking about, I had to explain to them like you're not going to die if you get yeah, it, yeah. like it's okay. That means that we have not hit the bottom of what this coronavirus, in terms of fear and uh, volatility, can actually do to this economy. Yep, and it's pretty crazy. So it's and too is like it, uh, a lot of uh, uh, higher end venture capital firms are hitting up their portfolio companies saying, listen, you know, hold your cash. Don't like, you know, figure, stop your burn. You may have to get rid of people. Like it's, it's like, this is 2008. They're like, this is 2008. Just, you know, it might take three quarters to, to bounce back. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and just all I got to say is that that's going to, um, 
this is just going to make for an interesting political season. But that's, you know, besides <laughs> that just even makes it even worse that, that the volatility even goes up with that. But it's uh, it, it's so interesting. And, it, <laughs> and for me, the, all this stuff is so connected. Right. So just for the for the audience listeners that might be wondering, like, where are we going with this episode? The one thing I, I just want you guys to say is just hold on for a little bit longer, because I think there's a there's a bigger truth here. And so there's a post on psychology today by a Ph.D. anthropologist and cognitive scientist. And what he essentially talks about if you read, by the way, if you don't read psychology today, like get on it because it's going to, it's going to elevate your, the way that you think about behavior. And if you're in, if you're a startup, you have to understand humans and, and how they operate. So starting with yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the article title is the coronavirus is much worse than you think. And I think what's interesting is this, this is not a podcast about the coronavirus, yeah. but this is a podcast about how do human behaviors enable us to build businesses in a different way today, right? The, the very building that we're sitting in right now, the ecosystem that we're building is 100% built on human behaviors that we notice. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So, so the thing is, there are two primary factors that drive all of human existence, right? You know, I'm not going to get into the amygdala and all the brain stuff, but you have fear and you have greed. Yeah. And I think that understanding how to lever and and I, I almost go as far to say manipulate fear and greed. And I think that it, it can be used for good or be used for bad. I mean, I think there were some really great gains that happened. You know, we're, we've got a lot of folks from, from state government that are listening to this, right? If you looked at what President Obama did in the Obama administration from his nudge unit, you know, there's some articles in the New York Times about how they were bringing in behavioral scientists and, you know, organizational development folks to be able to do that. The shift in psychology, I think, is the thing that gets me the most interested. So when I think about direct-to-consumer, the way in which we attract customers, retain customers, and drive customer value, that's a world that's completely shifted. Now, luckily, you know, Eric, for folks like yourself, and, and luckily David and I have been doing this for, for over a decade, right? Yeah. We, we understand as digital natives, right? We understand as elder millennials, I think as they'll call us, right? How this human behavior happens. You know, one of the things that people always ask us is, why are we always so early? When Snapchat first dropped, you know, we were one of the early adopters. When TikTok first dropped, even before it was called TikTok. Yeah, musically, we were, yeah. Yeah, musically, right? We were on these things. And I think... We, we, predicted, we, we predicted the rise of DJ Khaled. Dead. Oh, well, yeah, he, yeah. No, 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 Like, I knew, D, I knew, I met DJ Khaled in 1999. Yep. So I knew DJ Khaled way before most people did. When DJ Khaled got lost on the jet ski... That was the pivotal point in his career where his him getting lost on the jet ski and Snapchat and Snapchat about to 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 uh, to hockey stick and from the 19 year olds to the 25 year olds and so on. We called that moment precisely and we did a campaign. Yeah, so you capitalize. You saw a moment and you capitalize. <laughs> you can call it growth hacking. You can call it whatever it is. I think the if there's one gem that I want to leave the group with here for direct to consumer is first, I want to reset everyone's expectations. It is a very different way to deliver value. If you're a sales driven organization, one of the things that you're going to need to upskill your current sales force to understand is things like design thinking. We do a lot of work right now. I'd say, you know a quarter or more of the projects we're doing right now fall under the, the bucket of sales enablement, right? The amount of times on a weekly basis that my team says the word account-based marketing, which is a complete, completely divergent shift from previous and other ways to do customer acquisition, that's the shift, right? So if you're a brand that wants to add on a DTC portfolio or DTC model to your business, what I argue is a 
really easy way to do that is just start really small, right? Mm -hmm. Before you go and try to pivot your business, say, okay, you know, in the next 24 months, we want to see uh, 5% of our annual um, revenue come from this new, this new channel. Um, start arming your sales teams with, with skills like design thinking, um, with consultative selling, and more importantly, arm them with, with new ways to tell stories, right? One of the problems I think is that as we've moved past what I would call the relationship era mm -hmm. to an era that is much more value driven, it's a consultative era. So one of the biggest challenges that we face, talk about transformations at digital surgeons right now is how do we transform an industry that was very much transaction driven, you know, a, a world where a brand would give an agency or a service provider a brief or an ask. The agency or service would respond to set RFP or respond to the proposal with, here's how we will solve your problem. Here's what it will cost. That that market has dramatically shifted, right? One of the, like, people always ask, well, digital surgeons, like, you guys are a boutique, right? Who are your biggest competitors? Our biggest competitors right now are people that we're talking to about potentially, like, acquiring us, right? We're, like, the Deloitte's, the McKinsey's, the Accentures well, of the yeah, world, yeah, right? They want to get in on that. Yeah. They want to get in on that. Why? Because what they've realized now is that the era of million-dollar PowerPoints is starting to be beyond us, right? By the time that the ink dries on that book that someone prints out, it's it's over. Yeah, yeah, it's over, right? So I think the ability to be agile, and I don't mean agile from the software methodology perspective, yeah. but the ability to actually be flexible, resilient, and have tenacity, those are the tenets that I think drive direct to consumer. So whether you insource or outsource, whether you build the practice as a mix of of you know, SGNA internally, or you go out to vendors like Digital Surgeons, I think the one thing that I want to first temper the expectations of board of directors, temper the expectations of investors, and temper the expectations of executives to understand what is it that you're trying to achieve? Why are you trying to achieve that? And ultimately, why is direct-to-consumer going to give you the ability to provide more value? Because data is only one tenant Yep. But what good is first-party data if you don't have the tools, platforms, and people, and more importantly, skills in your workforce to be able to acquire that data? The amount of times that I've seen our customers spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, millions of dollars a year on data lake strategies and Salesforce marketing cloud and IBM marketing cloud and never even look at that data that's just sitting in a warehouse somewhere or mine that because data. Because knowing that I have data is, is worth it. Data so. is worthless without being being able to build it. And that's one of the things that, you know, I'd love for Dave to talk about that. You know, we've all seen what, what the, the SoftBank WeWork conundrum that's happening. You know, why is it that we're talking to cities all over America right now to take district in these different directions for, for our long-term yeah. vision? Mm -hmm. It comes down to the way we think about and mine and action that data. Back to my refinery comment. So, Dave, I think it's really important for the audience to think a little bit about how do we take data and turn it into stories that build communities? I'm going to come back to that in a second. I, I just had to, to say this one thing. A couple of the biggest strategies that we have come up with at Digital Surgeons for clients, whether they took them or didn't, would have never, ever been found in data. First-party data, literally. Like it, The only reason why we came to them is because we have we always have extreme empathy for the customer that's how that's how we kept we came to the table the best dtc strategies come from that dollar shave club started it wasn't a, it's not yes was there a a double down was it were they the first with the double down referral program absolutely did the first video crush it like like literally hit the hit the yeah. the, the 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 leather off the ball absolutely but the fact that they understood the 
behavior behind the customer walking into the store and saying, oh my God, shaving my face is already a pain in the ass. Now it costs a shitload of money, but now I got to spend all this money on this little box of razors that yeah. barely last me, or I can go to Costco and like have to deal with this whole big store to go buy this box and spend $120 on a box of razors and all this stuff. They, that's human behavior stuff. We met with a big competitor. I won't say the name because we didn't sign yeah. an NDA or anything, but they were basically chasing Dollar Shave Club. And we told them like, it's not too late. They decided, again, against the strategy that we proposed to them, uh, going into it, then a year later tried to buy a big competitor, and then the government actually shut down that purchase. Yeah. So you could put the pieces together on the podcast if you'd like to figure out who it was. But at least four major strategies that we had that were successful came out of understanding human behavior and None of the none of the and none of the insight would have came from data. There was no way that a data scientist and analyst would have been able to pull to put those pieces together. Now, what because was your question well, about I mean, communities? I mean, well, it's kind of funny. As it, it's like soft skills and interactions with people. That's like mm -hmm. where everything starts. You know, so it's like when you're observing people and understanding, and just and again, just going about your life and. and not looking down all the time, looking up, like seeing things happen. That's where the insights come from. And then you go look for data to, to, to match up with that, right? And, yeah. to, and to say yes, that, okay, my, my intuition was right or, or my intuition was wrong and good. Let's you, move on. You know, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know who would be, I think, who would be like really, if you studied comedians, Oh, observational yeah. comedians oh, like a yeah. Sebastian Maniscalco oh, yeah, he's who great. pays yeah, yeah, really yeah. close attention to the way people act mm -hmm. like the, like his skit about um, uh, when someone people used to just show up to your house when you were little <laughs> and knock and ring the doorbell and you, your parents would like open who's that yeah. and be like oh my god <laughs> it's so and so our neighbor yeah uh, let's make some Sanka and eat some Entenmann's. <laughs> and nowadays, someone oh, the you're like, what are you doing? and you like hit the ground and <laughs> look for a rifle, <laughs> right? Like it's it, it, observational uh, uh, comedians are actually like the the probably what what I would consider is the best people to watch yep. for insights around how consumers behave. Uh, so, so I don't yeah. remember what your question was, but I'll, I can. But yeah, I mean, you guys. We'll we'll put it this way. We're gonna we'll, let's put a pin in that one because I know you guys have a lot of uh, you guys are busy guys, and I, I kind of want to get uh, get you back to the day. But uh, and I know you have some grand plans for the district, so maybe that will be uh, kind of a next podcast we can talk about. But I guess uh, just kind of leave the audience with uh, um, some uh, things to think about and maybe some tips tips and tricks. Uh, and then how do they uh, get in touch with you? How do they get in touch with the district? How do they kind of access this community? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, so to get in touch, I would love to connect with anybody. I'm, uh, I'm on Medium and Twitter and LinkedIn and all those things. Just yeah, that's how we Pete connected, Senna. so it's yeah, great. Yeah, it's just uh, P-E-T-E-S-E-N-A. Um, I'll let Dave speak to the best way to get in touch with District in just a moment because I know he's got a number of different ways that, that work for him and the team. Um, just the one thing I want to leave the audience with today, well, first is just gratitude and appreciation for for eric i know this is uh, a labor of love for you and for the past couple of years so I'm yeah, grateful. podcasting is a weird uh, business model right it's hard to <laughs> you know but it's a labor of love right and i think that there's i've listened to obviously in prepping for today listened to a couple of the other things that you put up there and i have to say like it's uh it's important right it's and it's a nice thing sometimes to not just be listening to justin bieber on the way home from from work i appreciate and, it well, yeah. oh so that's on your playlist yeah. okay we got it top 40 just <laughs> i i gotta up my game right i gotta talk to dave he's the music man but i think the thing i would leave the audience with whether it's direct to consumer or transformation or entrepreneurship the one thing that i just like to leave people with pers both personally and professionally is to really focus on progress over perfection 
and to think about where it is that they're trying to get to. So what I, what I always tell people is close your eyes and just imagine yourself at some time in the future. It could be next week, next month, next year, next decade. And really like, what does it look like, feel like to be in that place? right? So are you on a stage in front of 300 people? Are you that comedian that's got the Netflix special? Are you the entrepreneur that just sold their company to Facebook or Google? Whatever your dream is, visualize and imagine yourself not there from a goals perspective. Frankly, I think goal setting is broken. It's something I'd love to come back and talk Mm, to you about. Um, But I think really visualizing that end step in your mind's eye, and then stepping backward to understand what are all the little micro things that you can do. Goal setting is, is overwhelming, especially when you don't know where you're trying to get to. But what I always say is understand and visualize what it might look like or could look like. The other day I had someone tell me that they imagined themselves on a boat in Monaco watching the Grand Prix. Right. And I started to understand what it looked like to do that. Right. And then I asked a very simple question, you know, what if you just spent 2,500 bucks and just, you know, Went on went, a trip there. Went on yeah. a trip there and, and got on some some boat cruise trip through some whatever thing. You know, would that solve the problem? Or do you have to own the boat and, and own the yeah. the sponsorship? So I think there's a there's a hundred different ways or a million different ways to get to that destination. What I'd leave the audience with is progress over perfection. What are those small steps that you can take today? What are the things that you can do? You know, binge watch one less episode today of Game of Thrones or whatever it is that you're binging these days since I know that's over and ask yourself, what can I do today? What can I learn today? What can I try today to be able to turn some of these losses into learning? So progress over perfection at Pete Senna. Would love to connect with you guys. Um, I'll leave it for Dave for a world-renowned sign-off as he always does. Thank you. Thank you. So momentum, key, key thing is momentum. Just keep swimming. Keep swimming. I like it. I like it. Uh, so if you want to get in touch with District, uh, there's a million ways to do so. Uh, you can drop in for a free Friday. We do that once a month uh, at the co-working space. You can come to any one of the Law Lab uh, presentations. Um, so I think it's uh, just look for the Law Lab. Yeah, Law on, Lab, I think. Or... Yeah, uh, uh, on Instagram, they have uh, tons of presentations. I actually went to the last one on how to incentivize your employees, which was awesome. Um you can obviously reach out, do a tour. You can come for an open house at Holberton. There's events happening all the time. You can come check out the gym, do a drop-in at the athletic club, take a spin class. Uh, there are uh, uh, Tuesday teas with Albot through U of Next. There are conscious capital, uh, conscious capitalism, cap- capitalism events happening every month through uh, Glenn McDermott. And I mean, there's just, there's so yeah. much activities. We're probably having a, a, a hundred plus events here a year at this point, uh, or just drop in, uh, have some lunch, yep. chill at the beer garden, have a beer. You're going to meet people. All right. Very cool. Well, guys, thank you very much. Good conversation. And, uh, till the next time. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to CT startup, more Connecticut startup news, Information and events can be found at ctstartup.com. The weekly episodes of this podcast can be downloaded from iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and ctstartup.com. Finally, we would like to thank both Sublime Exposure Online and Mirtha Kalina for providing resources and space to CT Startup, which make this show possible. See you next week.